This is Chatter. I'm Benjamin Wittes, Lawfare's Editor-in-Chief. This week on Chatter, Lawfare Senior Editor Roger Parloff on covering the January 6th trials. If you don't have the resources, maybe you don't need to charge 500 misdemeanor cases. If, if something has to go by the wayside, I would think maybe the nonviolent misdemeanor cases rather than Trump. The only hope they have is jury nullification, which is why they want desperately to move the case someplace else. They want to get a trial where even though they're guilty, somebody will disregard the law and the facts. If a Republican is elected, probably all these things go away. If Trump is elected, all these things go away. And so we don't have lots of time. You are currently covering January 6th uh, trials and litigations for lawfare. And I want to come back to that uh, presently. But I want to start, if I could, with how you got into the business of legal reporting in the first place. You're uh, unlike me. You're actually a real lawyer. You've been but you haven't practiced in a long time. So tell us the story of how you went from a guy who went to law school, presumably to be a lawyer, to a guy who uh, hangs out in courtrooms covering trials of people who try to overthrow the Constitution. Well, I think I went to law school actually not planning to practice. I thought I would write about it. And... uh, and I ended up practicing a little longer than I expected because I thought that would give me more street cred. Uh, but um, uh, I then, uh, after about five years, I did uh, a turn to uh, journalism. So you you went to law school intending to use it for journalism? Either to teach or for journalism, yeah. I didn't expect to practice. Of course, in law school, you know, litigation gets a very good uh, press sort of, you know, that seems like the real thing. Um, and so I wanted to try it and I really did not have the, uh, um, you know, uh, it's it's just one pissing match after another and it's less, uh, it doesn't become, uh, you know, uh, Perry Mason until you've had about 30 years uh, of experience. And until then, you're mainly juggling documents and bickering about, uh, you know, uh, uh, you didn't give me your documents. Well, we can't until you give me your, you know, it's just, uh, and I wasn't cut out for it, especially at the district court level. It's very belligerent. But um, so after five years, I did uh, step back. What did you do before law school? Um, I did uh, write for a couple years between college and law school. I Well, I was a proofreader at uh, Esquire magazine, which... Uh, um, you know, magazines were a big deal back then. This was uh, uh, maybe I graduated in 77. And uh, then I uh, <laughs> was doing some freelance writing. And uh, but after uh, and I, I did, yeah, I did a little 
freelance writing for New York magazine and um, and then went back to law school. <laughs> when I met you for the first time, we were both working for the uh, American lawyer media empire, which I say partly um, ironically and in the sense that it was a fairly small company – but partly not ironically in that a huge percentage of the people that I know who do legal journalism at the highest levels passed through the uh, the Steve Brill, uh, Steve being the founder of the, the empire, um, passed through this network. Um, you were, when I was a kind of cub reporter there, you were one of the, the uh, star features writers at, at uh, what we called AMLAW, which was the American lawyer, the, the sort of New York glossy magazine. Uh, tell us about how you came to be uh, a features writer uh, at American Lawyer and, uh, and, and, you know, for people who don't have never heard of the American lawyer or heard of the sort of Steve Brill network, mafia, whatever you want to call it. Uh, tell us about your history with that that uh, esteemed uh, crime family. Yeah. Um, well, I go back pretty far so that before Steve started um, the American lawyer – he was a columnist at Esquire when I was proofreading. He was probably only a couple years older than me. I mean, he was sort of a phenom. And uh, um, so I met him there and he was a terrifying figure and nobody wanted to proofread for him. But uh, I, uh, I had successfully done so and he seemed content with my, you know, minimalist uh, uh, emendations. So and, just for those who uh, – when, when Roger says that Steve is a terrifying figure, Jill Abramson, who was one of his editors who later went on to be the executive editor of the New York Times, described him once as a maniac but a maniac on a mission. And I <laughs> yeah. think that uh, actually mm -hmm. captures it in a, in a, uh, in a, a way that's pithy but quite accurate. Yeah, so he eventually um – uh, started uh, this uh, his own company, the American Leader, and I helped distribute the first issue uh, at an ABA convention in New York. Um, the the uh, sort of a uh, I guess it would be a pilot issue to to try to. And so later, after I went to law school and decided to write, I wrote to him because that would be you know, and uh, he gave me uh, he remembered me and gave me a spot with a – at that point it was – there was a weekly in Manhattan called Manhattan Lawyer with uh, – the uh, editor was Ellen Pollack who is now the editor of the New York Times uh, business page. And um, uh, so I started there and uh, after maybe a year I moved up to the magazine because I preferred longer feature writing. And I was there for a good time and um, I did uh, – had – it was a good experience. I, I wrote a book while I was there and he uh, uh, was very accommodating for that. Surprisingly, you know, patience is not uh, the thing people usually uh, 
uh, highlight about Steve, but um, he was, uh, in fact, a patient. And uh, so that was a good experience. And then, of course, he left before I did. (laughs) He sold the whole thing, uh, which was, uh, and then uh, around about 2000, I left to uh, join a uh, cool publication called Inside, Um, not Insider, but Inside. It was short-lived, Kurt Anderson uh, was running it, and uh, um, and uh, it had a uh, David uh, Carr was a writer. It had some fantastic people, and uh, but of course it didn't last too long. Um, it was it was sort of right. At, it was as the dot com crash was occurring, and um, and then uh, it was acquired by Brill's Content. So I was swallowed back. You know, you can't, you can't. You can never entirely escape, <laughs> right. Steve Brill. They they keep pulling me back, and uh, um, and then uh, and then September 11th happened, and uh, uh, all uh, advertising uh, collapsed. I mean, there were more serious things about 9/11 than that, but but topically, uh, and so Brill's content uh, folded. So then I freelanced for a couple years, and uh, then uh, uh, and then uh, Joe Nacera, who liked my stuff at Inside, uh, invited me to uh, do some pieces for Fortune, and that led to uh, uh, essentially uh, him hiring me. He wasn't the editor, but he it was his. Uh, I was he was my rabbi, and uh, I joined uh, Fortune and had some good years there. So. I'm I'm interested in you have always thought of yourself and I've always thought of you principally as a legal writer but you've done some business reporting you've done some some other stuff as well how do you think about the parameters of your career I I from from my point of view and I I I think of you as you and Stuart Taylor as kind of the paradigmatic American lawyer features writers. Um, but how, how? What's from from your point of view? What's the th- what are the through points of the Roger Parloff over? Uh, well, it was mainly uh, legal writing, but <coughs> I mean writing about legal topics. But it was a pretty broad palette. Um, both at uh, American, it was broader at American Lawyer because there was a lot of criminal stuff, and um, at, at at, but at, at Fortune, I, I there was antitrust, there was digital copyright, which was you know a very exciting area with Napster, um, uh, very interesting. There was uh, antitrust with Microsoft. Um, there was, uh, and then I did. You know, stray sometimes and did sort of pure uh, tech tech things, which were also quite interesting. The early artificial intelligence stuff, um, and uh, um, and uh, uh, some I, I, I did one about a uh, uh, Ferrari rally, uh, and I, I drove uh, three Ferraris over a uh, three day stretch from. Uh, Napa Valley to Monterey across the most beautiful 
roads that Ferrari could find because they they provide these rallies for their people because you buy these beautiful cars, but there isn't much to do with them because they're very, very impractical. So people, you know, like once a year, they'll put their cars on a truck and they ship them out to these rallies. And um, and then uh, Ferrari will have found some routes where, you know, some sinuous routes where that you can really get going and hug the road and they're just fabulous. But uh, so uh, and somebody else tunes the car for you and and uh, that was a sort of a great detour from my normal gig. <laughs> but like me, you've always come back to meaty legal questions rather than, you know, cars of the rich and famous or – right? I mean like some people kind of left the American lawyer group and left legal reporting. Uh, you and I have in common that it sort of remained – who we were essentially. Yeah, it did. And and after I left uh, Fortune in 2016, I began uh, freelancing. Uh, I uh, I actually for a year I ran uh, well I was the editor the editor in chief but the only editor, the only employee of uh, a publication called Opioid Watch that was trying to uh, follow the uh, opioid crisis. But that uh, it didn't last uh, very long at all, and um, uh, and it was a that was a it's a rough topic. That's a rough topic, and uh, surprisingly, uh, as you quickly learn when you get into it, it's it's uh, it's it, you might think that following the opioid crisis would be sort of non-controversial but actually it's exceedingly controversial because uh, the, the, uh, the people with chronic pain are, ter- are terribly worried about losing their opioids and so just calling it opioid crisis is, is controversial you know because uh, they, they, they need their opioids and they're afraid uh, the world is uh, cracking down and, and anyway so that was a rough gig and then um, uh, and then we came down to Washington to be closer to my daughter and her then one grandchild, now now, now two. And um, uh, and by then I had written one story for Lawfare just, uh, you know, because I liked the publication and so I'd done uh, – uh, a one-off there and uh, so I called you and uh, of course there was no money but you said uh, you would get some and you did and uh, and the rest is history. Yeah, so let's talk about that history because I think you have um, done something that is uh, genuinely different from the way other publications have uh, covered – post-January 6th litigation um, and one of the one of the components of it is that you know a lot of the people who cover this litigation are the federal courts reporters for various big publications the Washington Post Politico the New York Times right they have these people who cover what's ever going on in the courthouse, including that gets dominated by January 6th. But um, but there's 
but they're doing other things at the same time. And you're part of a small group of people who just aren't doing anything else, that this is kind of what you're doing. So I'm, I'm curious how you break down the group of people who you're working with and, you know, who are the ones that are kind of doing the same thing that you're doing? Who are the ones that flit in and out? And I'm not, not criticizing them or anything, but they're, they're covering a million things and this is one. And who are the, and how many people when, when there's a case going on in the press room, you've just never seen them before. Uh, it's usually the same people. Uh, it's mainly the same people uh, for for uh, each case. But I have been able, uh, because of you know, because we're a nonprofit, really, uh, I have been able to devote you know d- deranged amounts of time to uh, the cases that we thought were the most important, um, particularly the Oath Keepers' first seditious conspiracy case and the Proud Boys seditious conspiracy case. And um, the other uh, publications do cover those, and they cover them well, but uh, there is a small group of people that really would like to um, basically follow along like a baseball game and really get the play-by-play. And uh, there are only two of us in a position to do that, um, me and uh, uh, Brandy Buckman has also done that as well, and uh, others do some uh, very some good uh, t- tweeting too. But they're usually called away because of obligations. Uh, you know, they can't really fo- follow one case, and they've got to. Uh, there's a thousand January sixth case, and a lot of them are interesting and important. So, and they and the people that are called away. Uh, began to appreciate what we did. It gave them a chance. You know, this is much less. Nobody can afford a transcript for a, a trial that goes 62 days. And um, uh, nobody, uh, most people can't afford it for one day. And uh, so this is not a transcript, but it is It is a, a nice uh It's attempt. transcript adjacent. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's, um, there's been a, quite an appetite for it. Um, and um, and it's been fun to do, and the folks at the in the media room have been very uh, welcoming and uh, appreciative. And um, uh, yeah, it's a, uh, when I was a kid, I liked uh, you know I grew up uh, nearby, I, even though I spent most of my life in New York. So I followed the Washington Senators. This will date me some. And uh, and so I listened to uh, the games on my transistor radio, uh, Dan 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 Daniels and uh, John McLean, and uh, so and you know they would they would root for the senators, but but basically they tried to be fair, you know, and uh, I thought the Baltimore annou- announcers were more biased, and but I I strived uh, for uh, you know the Washington senators' <laughs> approach, and you know. Just the facts, ma'am, as much as possible, and uh, there was an appetite for that. And uh, and and you learn a case. I mean, it's just there's nothing like it in terms of really understanding a case, and uh, it's it's been fascinating. So, who are the reporters and scholars who are covering these cases in the broadest sense? I mean, I'm th- thinking. Not just of reporters, but also of 
data aggregators and, you know, fo- folks who are, you know, providing information about these cases, who are the ones who you're you have particular confidence in and when you go to uh, – I mean one thing you're doing is not just sitting through long cases but you're also writing about the cases as a group, right? You're also writing about arguments that are being made in – across multiple cases. So at some points you're relying on other people's work as well as your own who are the people who are working in this space whose work you really trust? Seamus Hughes at the George Washington University program on extremism, uh, you know, his group has been extremely helpful and his website has been extremely helpful. And, talk, and explain for those who have never been to it, what is that website doing that is adding value here? They've been um, – from the very beginning, uh, keeping track of uh, documents uh, in the case and and s- keeping track of statistics and slicing and dicing the statistics in various ways and occasionally they do reports. So they're, they're a very uh, useful group. So for example, just to, to make this vivid, if you want to know um, – how many people have been convicted of felonies uh, or whose cases are still pending um, and who have been accused of violent crimes as opposed to trespassing, right? This is data you can access that helps you evaluate that. Exactly. And the DOJ itself has some useful uh, websites as well that help process this. NPR has a fairly good searchable uh, website as well. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving people out. There are people that sort of help me when I'm live tweeting that often they don't – I don't – they often don't use their real names but uh, – uh, maybe some do, but they are among the sort of sedition hunters who uh, really uh, have poured over the open source video and uh, uh, in an astounding way and have helped the DOJ to identify uh, potential uh, people to pay attention to. Um, so those people uh, sort of in real time sometimes correct mistakes or show me things that – uh, lead me to uh, avenues to pursue, identify peripheral f- characters, correct my spellings. So uh, <laughs> they, <laughs> they've been useful. And then, um, you know, I do read the daily uh, stuff. I'm going to, unfortunately, I'm going to leave out people, but uh, the Washington Post has done some good uh, statistics about sentencings and um, Spencer Shu and uh, Rachel Weiner and Tom Jackman and and then um, NPR's Carrie Johnson is uh, uh, you know I follow her Kyle Cheney is covers an astounding number of beats I don't know how that, it's possible um, yeah because he also did the January sixth committee litigations in the middle of this thing yeah uh, and then Jordan. Fisher of the local CBS uh, station is, you know, knows probably 
knows these cases as well as anyone, with the possible exception of Ryan J. Riley of NBC, who's also, uh, you know, they really have seen it all. Um, and then CNN uh, has done important stuff. So, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm going to leave people out uh, inadvertently, but, uh, uh, I, you know, I t- try to keep abreast. Alan Foyer of The Times has done a lot of breaking news. Um, so uh, I, I have to keep try to keep abreast uh, of all of this. I don't know if people rem- nobody remembers the the guy on the Ed Sullivan show that you know kept all the plates r- r- going across the stage, uh, but uh, that's that's what it's like. Do you think, as a general matter, that the press <laughs> has done a good job covering? The January six cases. I mean, you know, people talk about it as a as a taxing thing for the Justice Department, for the courts, for uh, you know, for not to mention for the defense bar. You know, yeah, each of these people has to get a lawyer, right? Um, but actually, positioning the press to cover twelve hundred mm-hmm. serious criminal cases. Um, and to do them both justice as individual cases but also as a pattern of cases, right, is a major league undertaking as a reporting matter. How do you evaluate the press's performance? Uh, I, I, I'm very impressed uh, um, and uh, incidentally, I, I'm going to – uh, flashback and, and I realize I omitted mention of uh, Marcy Wheeler, Empty Wheel. You need to follow her uh, and because uh, she – I don't know how she does it. She reads every document uh, in, in, in a thousand cases and uh, that's another uh, sort of vital thing. Plus, if I don't mention her, she's going to really ream me out. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, uh, well – Marcy has a long history of of a uh, shall we say uh, uh, antagonistic relationship with lawfare that has recently, uh, in the last several years, become a alternately warm and antagonistic <laughs> relationship with lawfare. And uh, I never know whether she's going to respond uh, to something on lawfare by embracing it or by uh, attacking it. Um, and uh, I think she makes an immense contribution, um, partly just because she reads every scrap of paper and there's nobody else who – there's nobody else who has 360, uh, 360 visibility on as much of the criminal docket as she does. Yeah, I, I, that's right. I um, going back to the press. Uh, obviously, the the uh, people on the right uh, are obviously not satisfied with the press. They feel it's biased. Um, but uh, what um, uh, what I see is, uh, you know, it, it it's sort of incredible what the uh, daily reporters do in terms of taking these incredibly complex cases and boiling them down and putting something that is fair in my humble opinion and that and, and and doing it on deadline and doing it uh at the end of a day when uh, you know 
you've watched this thing. You, you, you're trying to pay attention to every word, and then you have to put it down on paper, which fortunately when I'm live tweeting, I don't typically have to right. do. Because you're can, sort of doing something more like a transcription. Yeah. Uh, so I'm done. And when I do finally, you know, want to write something, I take my sweet time, you know, and uh, do, you know, have some weekends and think about it. And But no, these people at the, at the end of the day uh, somehow need to bring it together and do it in, you know, 1200 words and uh uh and uh it's uh you know the it, it, it it's amazing so my old colleague on the Washington Post editorial page Peter Milius uh whom I was privileged to work with for a couple of years when I first got there before he uh died very suddenly um, he told me on my first day of as an editorial page writer that – and I'll never forget this metaphor – that he every day gets to watch a show and uh, he would watch the show and he could call the actors and they would all take his calls and so he could talk to people in the show and then at the end of every day, he would write a little review of the show. And then the next day, here's the, the punchline, the review would become the opening act of the show and he would do it again. And I, I, I think that's a really good – it's a really good metaphor for editorial writing, but it's also in some ways a, a good metaphor for beat reporting where you're dealing with repeat players – every day uh, and everybody's reading everything that everybody writes. And so, you know, if you're covering the Oath Keepers, one group of people who's reading, you know, what Roger Parloff is live tweeting about the Oath Keepers is the Oath Keepers. Um, and, um, and, you know, you, you said you had a uh, desire to be like the the uh, announcers or the broadcasters for the Washington Senators. So are the Oath Keepers in this context analogizable to the players for the other team? <laughs> like uh, I, if, we take I, the, if we take this metaphor no, I, I don't think at, I want to go there at exactly. face value, like, <laughs> Who are the like? How do you understand like who's the home team? Who's the who's the away team? No, I do. Uh, you know, I, I when I'm taking this down, I I try to take it. I try to play it straight, and uh, uh, and and there's a lot of uh, people have appreciated that, and I have had some of the defendants uh, following me. Um, and uh, and sometimes they point out, you know, good things, you know, when I'm inadvertently biased. Um, and, uh, no, I, 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 you know, I do have opinions and they, they come out eventually. Uh, but uh, I, I've been trying to lay it down the middle. And I do think that among all of the cases there, um, you know, these seditious conspiracy cases have the most – uh, 
genuine issues, you know, like uh, with, with the run-of-the-mill case, uh, shave, there's sort of shaving a haircut cases. That there's People are, you know, the issue is, you know, they've been filmed from every which way. You know, they've been and half of them did the filming themselves. Yeah, and posted they filmed, it on Yeah, they've got a three sixty camera on their helmet. You know, and and they've they've written beforehand that they're going to do an insurrection. They've written afterhand afterwards. Boy, I stormed the Capitol. Uh, it was great. And and then they filmed themselves. And then there's five hundred and fifty Capitol. Uh, surveillance cameras and and there's hundreds of uh, TV and and selfies from the rioters. You know, the only hope they have is jury nullification, which is why they want desperately to move the case someplace else. It's not because they're not getting a fair trial. It's because they want to get a trial where even though they're guilty, somebody will disregard the law and the facts. And there are certainly jurisdictions where I think that would happen. I think in the big conspiracy cases, there are more legitimate issues uh, where, you know, reasonable people could disagree, especially about the top charges, seditious conspiracy. So uh, uh, but so and those are the cases I've paid most attention to. So Mm -hmm. I've tried to play it fairly straight. So I want to talk about this uh, Washington Post story that ran Mm -hmm. over the weekend, uh, which relates to a set of issues that you and I have been talking about for more than a year now, um, which is the relationship between these cases, what you call the blue-collar January 6th cases, and the political echelon cases. And as you know, the story basically reports that the FBI and the Justice Department were uh, slow to get off the ground on the white-collar cases being determinedly focused both for reasons of deterrence, of future violence, and out of a certain caution about getting involved in political echelon cases uh, involving the Trump White House uh, focused really on the blue-collar cases. And so first of all, I'm I'm just interested in your reaction to the story, both as somebody who takes the blue-collar violence very seriously, but also as somebody who's been, uh, I think it's fair to say, perturbed by the slowness of the white-collar investigation. What did you make of the story? Well, I thought it was uh, a very – I thought it was an impressive piece of reporting. There have been uh, questions raised that I have not uh, had a chance to uh, study and and see whether there, there are merits to it. There are people that are taking issue with the timeline. Including Mar- both Marcy Wheeler and Kyle Cheney, yeah. both of whom we mentioned earlier yeah. as – people who are interesting on this subject. Yeah, but what it, the, the Post did seem to take the view, which I think Andrew Weissman has been taking for a long time, that there was this uh, sort of crazy um, or misguided uh, or, or overly uh, uh, cautious or prudent, prudential 
um, uh, insistence on only following the blue-collar cases and hoping that uh, eventually you would flip and flip and flip and the people, top people would jump the, uh, the uh, jump, air gap. Jump the, the, uh, the collar-collar barrier. Yeah, yeah, and, and reach the white-collar people. You know, the, like maybe uh, Rhodes could give you Ali Alexander and Alex Jones and then you would go all the way up to the president. That, if that was the plan, that didn't work. The thing about but, it but, – But can I ask a question about that? Was that like – so today we know and sort of uh, after some period of investigating the blue-collar cases, it became clear that the blue-collar cases were not going to deliver the white-collar cases – but was that an unreasonable theory for the Justice Department to start with? Like, OK, like treat this as the mob. The mob, you go after the little guys, they flip, they give you the bigger guys. You get the mid-level guys flip, they give you. That's what they've been doing with the Trump organization, right? It Was that an unreasonable theory or was it a good theory that turned out to be wrong? Um, I think the thing about it that seemed off to me – is you knew from before Merrick Garland arrived in the office, March uh, 2021, you knew before then about this Trump phone call to Raffensperger. I don't know how you ignore that. You know, know, are you hoping that, you know, two years down the road – Roads will tell you something that will tell you something about you know there's a separate problem going on you know what is he doing calling Raffensburger and I and don't you have a similar issue with some of the fake electors yes. stuff that yeah. that stuff comes out and the department seems kind of sluggish about it they, yeah they refuse uh, people want to well according to the post story if I'm remembering correctly. People want to pursue it, and they they're they're told not to uh, at that stage. I think Nara early on, Nara had tried to get, you know, they noticed early on they had sort of six or seven nearly identical uh, sort of fake electors yeah. things that were filed with them, and they notified the DOJ, and and nothing happened to it until more than a year. Some of these delays seem to have to do with. Uh, there was uh, trouble getting the a new U.S. attorney approved. That doesn't happen till November, um, and the tw- assistant and the assistant attorney general for national security. Yes, that was the other key one. So you know there were some problems like that. But uh, no, I I really don't think that you know if the if, if, that pursuing one attack only. Uh, can't I can't really see it in light of huge clues like that that something else was going on. So, one thing that I would say if I were <laughs> making the case for Merrick Garland is, first of all, nothing really turned on this, right? So you do things slowly and methodically, and you open later than people think you should. And there are a few good reasons for that. One is you've got literally thousands of cases on your plate and 
you know, in retrospect, the Raffensperger call seems really important. But what you're really concerned about in real time is Stuart Rhodes um, and, you know, Enrique Tarrio, right? And and so like the the salience of these issues clarifies over time and that's fine. Um, another thing you might say is, well, um, uh, the real concern in the short term and the Post says this um, – was in deterring violence at the Biden inauguration. You wanted to get as many people off the streets as you could. And, you know, statutes of limitations being what they are, you're going to have plenty of time later to deal with uh, the political echelon if the evidence supports that. And then the third thing, which, you know, is you say, okay, Fonnie Willis has – investigated one element of this, you know, only the part that involves Georgia. And it's taken her as much time as it's taken the Justice Department with a thousand other – literally a thousand other cases and with all the other fake elector stuff and with everything else that was going on in the Justice Department and with, um, you know, the Mar-a-Lago investigation arising separately. And so maybe – if Merrick Garland were here, what he'd say is, hey, this wasn't the, you know, even under the best of circumstances, if you can focus only on this, it's still a two-year investigation. And I'm wondering if, you know, both Andrew Weissman and the other people who have criticized uh, uh, the pace of this investigation are actually just underestimating how how intensive this investigation was necessarily going to be. Well, um, all of this is, you know, second-guessing people who know a ton more than I know, you know, and, and so I feel uncomfortable. Um, and uh, uh, but I would say couple things. Um, I don't know that we have lots of time. Uh, we're already at a stage where each indictment brought Trump saying, oh, it's election interference. Now I'm running again. Um, if uh, a Republican is elected, um, probably all these things go away. Um, if Trump is elected, all these things go away. Um, and so we don't have lots of time. I, Fanny Willis, as I understand it, it sounds like she has been trying to do an investigation beyond just Georgia. And that's one of the sort of crazy things about having her do it. It's been very hard to try to get the subpoenas honored in other states. No, but she uh, hasn't. She's been trying to do investigative conduct beyond Georgia, but she hasn't been investigating the effort to overturn the election in Arizona or in okay. Wisconsin or in Pennsylvania. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, I, I, I assume that's true. But um, uh, even so, the call, you know, Trump called Raffensburg. He wasn't trying to become 
president of Georgia. You know, he was trying to become president of the United States. And uh, so the fraud is on the United States. This is fundamentally a federal issue, and it's much easier to subpoena every for the federal government to subpoena everyone relevant than it is for Fannie Willis. Uh, of course, it, it is nice that Fannie Willis, uh, that you know, nobody has the pardon power to nullify what she does. But that's that's uh, uh, a bonus. It, it's not a substitute. And um, uh, so I, I I still don't really. I, I think you know if I were to continue to second guess. You know, I, I, I think you could ask, well, if, if you don't have the resources, maybe you don't need to charge 400 misdemeanor cases, 500 misdemeanor cases against the nonviolent people. I understand the point people are making and uh, the, the, there is a point to it. But if if something has to go by the wayside, I would think maybe the nonviolent misdemeanor cases rather than Trump, you know. Right. So is your working understanding that the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers cases are kind of the high watermark of the January 6th litigation in the Barrett Prettyman courthouse and now uh, – the we're on the sort of downslope of of January sixth street level violence and you know I don't know what to call them rioters insurrectionists uh, the street level stuff is has peaked we're past max January sixth accountability for that group I think that's right. Um, uh Unless, you know, we ever pick up the trail of the pipe bomb people, I don't know what, what was happening there. But um, uh, that's that's my sense. I, I, there are some three percenter trials out there that uh, – but I think they're I, – I, I don't think they're the main event. And, and what about – so what, what does that mean for the group of people who've been – we've – talked about who have been basically, you know, covering these cases for the last two years, does this energy all shift to Mar-a-Lago and you all go uh, hang out in Miami or is it a uh, – or does the sort of gang kind of break up at this point? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, uh, one of them, uh, I'm not going to say who seems to have been sort of – his, his assignment has metamorphosed some, uh, so uh, maybe uh, there is a sense uh, that uh, we've reached an inflection point. Um, and uh, uh, I certainly am uh, focused more on uh, the white-collar stuff and uh, uh, waiting to see what happens there. Um, and... Uh, we, we do have these interesting cases that are at different stages, the Peter Navarro case and the, uh, I guess, Bannon appeal. Uh, those are very difficult these issues. These are contempt of Congress yeah, those cases. those are very difficult, thorny legal issues and rather small stakes criminal. You know, those are uh, 
misdemeanor uh, level crimes. Right. Um, I think all the small stakes in terms of their jail time, but I think quite large stakes in terms of Congress's ability to enforce subpoenas. Yeah, 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 that's true. So you say you have your eye on the white collar stuff. Um, I watch this investigation and I honestly can't figure out what Jack Smith is really looking at. You get these subpoenas. You get these people wandering into the grand jury. Sometimes it seems like it's about Mike Pence and the pressure on him. Sometimes it seems like it's about fake electors. Sometimes it seems like it's about, uh, you know, it seems to bounce around. And I don't have a sense of how close to done it is. What if you were in Vegas laying odds on where things are in the January 6th investigation, what would you – what's your work in theory of it? Um, yeah, I, I uh, don't know when it's – or if it's coming down. But I, I think there is a sort of unified field theory that will bring into account uh, the uh, uh, false electors scheme um, – and the pressure on Pence, um, the, even the pr- pressure on DOJ, it would be, it would be enormous and sprawling, but uh, it would be a massive uh, um, conspiracy. Maybe that's too impractical, um, uh, so they'll break it down and try to look for something that's that's cleaner, um, you know. Uh, Mail frauds based on, you know, f- false statements in in campaign funding. You know, uh, the, but that would be <coughs> that would be really nibbling around the edges. And and for me, uh, you know, I know we, you you probably think the First Amendment issues are too great, but I I still think there is a basic. Um, uh, instigating uh, an insurrection, uh, uh, in incitement of uh, a riot, incitement of an insurrection. I think those are winnable cases under the extraordinary facts. So why you have now sat through two seditious conspiracy cases, why could you not charge the former president of the United States with seditious conspiracy as they have uh, as that – I mean the statute is incredibly broad. So it's, assume we're limiting it now by, by its enforcement history. What's the, what's the gap in the facts that says uh, that case would not be plausible? There's a lot of avenues with Trump where you could allege um, uh, a conspiracy to hold on to power in various ways. But not um, – who are the other conspirators besides him that want to use force against the United States? Um, who is he conspiring? You know, does Mark Meadows want to use force? Does you, no, I think they want to use these uh, false elector schemes or um, 
uh, you know, they uh, they want to use pressure on Pence. Uh, I think those are their schemes, um, and those do not involve the use of force. I think the only one you can say with any clarity wants force is the guy, you know, yelling, you've got to go fight or you won't have a country anymore, you know, 36 minutes before the barriers fall. The guy that summoned all the people there that said, we'll be wild, that's, you know, the guy that knows about that people don't want to go through the magnetometers because they, they're, they're armed and uh, wants, uh, you know, wants, uh, wants people to let them in anywhere. They're not here for me. Um, but, it, but it seems a little odd to say you can't have a conspiracy because there are no plausible co-conspirators. The immediate White House staff doesn't count because they didn't want to use force. And the people who wanted to use force, the people who responded to it, don't count because they were just following Trump's instructions. There was never an agreement between them. But couldn't you say, hey, the will be wild tweet, come to January 6th, will be wild, was an invitation. When you show up in response to that invitation, that's the agreement. And then when the president says, you know, we're going to march down to the Capitol and you got to fight like hell or you're not going to have a country anymore and you go do it, that's the agreement. Do you have to have met your co-conspirators? I don't think so. You don't have to have met all of them. Um, there does have to be a meeting of the minds. Um I, I don't know if you can just, you know, post on the Internet, uh, you know, come here, uh, let's, let's wink, wink, do violence, and then everyone that shows up is your co-conspirator. Right, because it's not it's, – yeah, it's, that it's more – that's more of an incitement yeah. than it is yeah. a um, – so you think as a realistic matter – the there is no even thinking broadly about the seditious conspiracy cases that have been brought. There's no plausible absent more evidence. There's no plausible seditious conspiracy case against Trump or his inner circle. Yeah, I, I, I this could be dead wrong, but but. Yeah, I don't see who else wants force to use force besides him. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so I, I think, I think that's a problem. You have conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, assuming that charge holds up. Um, but I think it's stronger against Trump than against most January sixth people. Um, I think it's uh, he's obviously seeking a personal benefit, which isn't true of most of the January 6th people. Um, uh, uh, and uh, uh, so I don't think corruptly is a hard problem there. Um, uh, you still have the question of whether the act, uh, yeah. whether the act involves shredding documents <laughs> yes, or right. tampering with witnesses, yeah. although I think, you know, 
I think, that, again, the case there is a little bit better with respect to Trump because he is – I don't think Pence is a witness exactly, but he is calling everybody. Um, he's doing things that we think of as um, – sort of like lobbying, yeah. right? And I, I don't – that's a different issue from, you know, putting your shoulder to the door. But it does seem a little bit closer to the sort of uh, the most restrictive reading of the statute. There's, there's also one other conspiracy statute they've used, which is the Criminal Ku Klux Klan Act, uh, 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 18 U.S.C. 372, which is um, – uh, using uh, – well, I guess that one also requires uh, the use of force, however. So you would need a conspiracy to use force and you run into the same problem. It's also only a six-year felony compared to the 20-year felony of corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding or the 10-year felony of, uh, of uh, instigating an insurrection. Do you think that – the Mar-a-Lago case, I mean, I think a lot of people have said the Mar-a-Lago case is a possible surrogate case for Jack Smith. As somebody who's watched a lot of other people go down over January 6th, um, I imagine that doesn't sit all that well with you. Do, do, from your point of view is – What's the relationship between a January 6th prosecution and a Mar-a-Lago prosecution? Uh, it's not a substitute. Um, you know, you, you've, you've prosecuted more than a thousand people uh, and they all will tell you, you know, and it's obvious, why are they there? They're there because of Trump. And, you know, to not go after him is... Uh, is just uh, you know it's 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 obscene. Um, also, at this point, uh, Mar-a-Lago being brought in Florida, um, extremely dicey. I would say uh, I, I it seemed like a slam dunk until I realized, you know, venue really sort of forces you to bring it there, and uh, then you come into the uh, uh, jury nullification issue. Uh, people might, I don't know if people, if it will be conscious or subconscious, but um, there is uh, just such, uh, I, I think the, the, the obstacles to be overcome with the jury and with uh, the judge are enormous. So, Roger, I'm uh, in keeping with uh, 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 the form of chatter. I'm going to pull a question from the chatter box and ask you. Here, uh, here we go. Who played the best Bond? <laughs> I'm a Sean Connery guy. Yeah, I mean that's really yeah, just yeah. a, a question I mean, with a right answer. I will say I did see the uh, the current guy. Um, uh, Daniel Craig. Yeah, Arden. and uh, it's a different it's a different thing, but uh, he is he is he's, he's a great new twist on it. But uh, you know, it doesn't it's not uh, the guy. It, it's probably you know it's probably more faithful to the Bond in the books. 
You yes, know, the bond although, in the books although, is, you know, although fidelity to the bond in the books <laughs> is uh, gets into some nasty territory for other reasons. But yes, I I agree with you. You know, it's very the books are very brutal and uh, and also deeply deeply racist. Oh, that I that I didn't remember. Yeah, each yeah. each of the books has a different foreign non-British villain oh. um, who is uh-huh. always a cultural stereotype of some um, either continental European villain or uh, uh, or ethnic minority villain. Um, they're they're oh. they're mm. really profoundly xenophobic. Um, I, I used to like uh, when I was trying to – when I was learning French, I started reading the Arsène Lupin uh, stories. And if you read the short stories, they're very – it's fun to – it's a good thing to start with. And um, they're short and, you know, engrossing. And then finally I read uh, one of his novels and wow, was it racist. <laughs> I, you know, I was – I just bowled over uh, – you know, you really go back too far into, and it was colonialist, and he's there alone. You know, uh, fighting off uh, thousands of Berbers and and uh, and, and the, his, his stuff, and it's not, not very good at a gender level either. But uh, right, well, that's I cer- guess DeSantis would like it. It's that, very, it's very unwoke. It's certainly true of the Ian Fleming books. <laughs> Roger Parloff, this has been a pleasure. Uh, Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. 